This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. The psychology behind misinformation and maple syrup producers are hoping for a better season than last year. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The Great Resignation is not happening in Canada. Despite anecdotes of massive turnover in workplaces, unlike the U.S., where the I quit rate jumped to record highs last year. StatsCan finds just over 7% of Canadian workers 15 to 69 were planning to leave their current jobs within the next year, compared with 16% six years ago. And the job switching rate, that's workers who remained employed from one month to the next but changed jobs, was higher than early in the pandemic. While the economy is recovering quickly, the Omicron wave led to mass layoffs, more remote working, and the highest rates of work absence owing to illness on record. New data from a scientific accident suggests that life may actually flash before our eyes as we die. Scientists based out of Vancouver measured the brain waves of an 87-year-old patient who had developed epilepsy. But during the recording, he suffered a fatal heart attack, offering an unexpected recording of a dying brain. It revealed, in the 30 seconds before and after, the man's brain waves followed the same patterns as dreaming or recalling memories. It could suggest that a final recall of life may occur in a person's last moments. The study is published in Frontiers in Aging Neuroscience. There was a huge change. There started a chain reaction of cases against uh, Nazi criminals after the Eichmann trial. The Israeli prosecutor who tried Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann in 1961 has died at 94. Gabriel Bach will stand through history as a beacon of justice. He was a state's attorney when he worked on gathering evidence against Eichmann, the Nazi mastermind of the final solution. The former Israeli Supreme Court justice once said that he believed in cases of crimes against humanity and mass murder, the death penalty must be applied. Eichmann was executed in 1962. Filmmaker and actor Sean Penn is in Ukraine to continue work on a documentary about the ongoing Russian assault. The 62-year-old attended press briefings, met with the deputy prime minister, and spoke with journalists and military about the Russian invasion. The office of Ukraine's president released a statement to say Penn is demonstrating bravery that many others have been lacking, in particular some Western politicians. The statement goes on to say the more people like him who support the fight for freedom, the quicker the heinous invasion of Russia can end. Melania Trump has launched her third NFT collection commemorating the Trump presidency. The former first lady began auctioning this week a new non-fungible token called the POTUS Trump NFT collection that commemorates moments from husband Donald Trump's presidency. 
It commemorates events like Christmas at the White House and the Trump's visit to Mount Rushmore. But bidders will not know exactly what they're buying until they've purchased it. The collection features 10,000 NFTs, each costing $50. I, I don't do tricks. I do magic. 102-year-old British magician Henry Lewis has entertained audiences around the world, including Canada, for over three decades. He's now a member of the Order of the British Empire for his services to fundraising and charitable causes. Henry says he was touched to receive the honour from Prince William and says magic is his hobby, not a profession. Asked for his secrets to living a long life, he said, think of what you'll be doing the next day and when you wake up, do it. I'm Christine Ross and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. We live in a world of misinformation, which is described as any information that turns out to be false. It infiltrates current events ranging from elections, the pandemic, the recent blockades and protests in Canada, and now the war in Ukraine. While it's not a new phenomenon, gone are the days of getting all our information from the newspaper. And experts who study this influence of people's reasoning even after it's been corrected call it the continued influence effect. Here to explain is Dr. Maddie Jalbert with the Center for an Informed Public at the University of Washington. Misinformation can encompass a lot of different pieces. So sometimes it can be active deceit, but other times uh, people can form false beliefs from misinformation that they've heard that has been corrected uh, through mistakes. Um, There's a lot of different ways in which misinformation can spread besides lying. Is there a subtle difference then between misinformation and disinformation? Yeah, so usually when we talk about disinformation, that refers to uh, misinformation that is purposely being spread, um, sometimes for ulterior motives, while misinformation kind of more broadly can refer to false information. But people use the terms interchangeably. This isn't a new phenomenon. Um, You know, it's been around forever. Nazi propaganda relied heavily on it for press and radio, but now we're in a digital age. So what is the difference and is it more dangerous today? Misinformation has always been a problem, but today it's been thrust into the forefront with the rise of social media. So in the past, you might have just gotten information from your friends and family and from newspapers, but now a lot of people get their information online. And so online, just about anyone can share and post information. Uh, You also have with social media websites, people are typically going and getting information from others that share their same view. And so instead of everyone getting their information from a newspaper, now some people might be getting their information from a newspaper or a news site, but other people might go and get their information from the people they follow on Twitter or from Instagram or from TikTok even. There are still people who believe that COVID-19 is a hoax, which kind of goes beyond misinformation and disinformation almost into conspiracy theories. Why is there such a resistance for these people to correct that belief? These kinds of beliefs can be really sticky to change, especially because a lot of them can be tied to identity. And so it's it's not the case that people hold this one isolated piece of misinformation. It's likely that they have other values and beliefs that are consistent with this misinformation. And also they're holding it in these kind of groups of this belief is often shared with other people that they interact with. There seem to be two silos now. We've got those who are, you know, uh, quick to refute uh, or to, to look at, you know, what the actual truth is and others who, no matter what you put in front of them, will deny, deny, deny. What What is the difference between those who come 
from it uh, an emotional basis and those who are more pragmatic? Is it is it critical thinking skills? Is it education levels? What is the difference between the two? Yeah, we do see that there are some differences in critical thinking skills and in education levels between between people who endorse COVID information versus COVID misinformation. But more broadly, I would say that people are getting information from different sources. And so if you give this factual information to the same group of people, they're going to read it and interpret it differently. And the people who might not believe it have already been exposed to other information that can help them refute the true information. So it's not just that their people are not good at understanding the true information when they get it. It's also the case that they might have alternative beliefs that that help them um, refute the false information or come with come up with counter arguments. And they might just say, "Oh, look, this this information comes from a source I don't trust, so I'm not even going to read it." So you can give people information all day long, but whether they're engaging with the information or just not engaging with the information is not something you can control. I've heard the term continued influence effect. In simple terms, what does this mean? The continued influence effect uh, refers to this phenomenon that even if you correct false information that someone believes, they can still rely on that false information in future decisions. And so an example might of this might be in the court if someone gives evidence that's inadmissible and then they have to retract the evidence. People are not very good at just pulling that information from their minds and making it disappear and pretending like they've never heard it. But the same thing can be said for misinformation that once someone's learned something like, say, the link between vaccines and autism, and then it's retracted and you're explained, oh, this is why this is not correct, you might still in the future be influenced by having learned that and be and believe, say, that vaccines are more dangerous or have the potential to cause autism, even if that's been corrected. We used to highly regard experts within healthcare and science. Those people are now being admonished openly by some people who don't have a science degree, rely on their social media connections, even if it's wrong. Journalists are being called fake news. Of course, that was all started by Donald Trump. This goes beyond questioning things into more hostile territory. Why is there this erosion of trust? So if you think about the the, the myth that's still so common that vaccines cause autism, that's been refuted. It was based on a study that was immediately retracted for having, for not being done properly. But that belief persists. And some of these things, if you, for example, have talked to a parent who said that their their child developed autism after the vaccine, or you see these specific examples, those things can be really sticky and really hard to, to correct for. Is there anything else you want to add? Instead of thinking of people as just people who believe misinformation and people who don't believe misinformation, that we're all people who are not always making the right decisions, who are not always believing true information. And to kind of just extend empathy to others that might believe misinformation and not think of it necessarily as a character flaw. That was Maddie Jalbert, postdoctoral scholar at the University of Washington. Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, what starts out sappy but ends up sweet? Maple syrup. More on what producers expect in this year's spring crop. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like-minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. 
Find out more at carp.ca. A trip to the maple sugar bush is a rite of spring for many, and producers are hoping for a sweeter season this year after last spring's less-than-ideal weather and the ongoing pandemic created the worst season in half a century. But if weather and daylight conditions are ideal, Purple Woods Conservation Area in Durham Region hopes to produce up to 1,200 litres of the liquid gold. We reach Dan Hope, who's with the Central Lake Ontario Conservation Authority. It has been a a tough go for maple syrup producers. Why was last year one of the worst in five decades? So unfortunately, this um, maple syrup production operation is dependent upon Mother Nature and the the elements that she provides. We had very little snowpack in, in our sugar bush at the Purple Woods Conservation Area in 2021, followed by very inconsistent temperatures too cold for the sap to run, uh, and when 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 things did warm up a little bit, um, they warmed up too quickly. The temperatures that we're looking for in our operation at the the north end of Oshawa is um, five to eight degrees Celsius positive temperatures during the day, followed by low um, temperatures in the evening, anywhere from minus one degree Celsius to minus five. Is there anything in addition to temperature that impacts production? Temperature and um, snowpack um, in in the sugar bush is uh, is very important as well to prolong the season. So I would assume this year with all the snow would be beneficial? We are hoping. We have um, a really good snowpack um, level in the bush right now. But we just need um, gradual onset of gradual warming of temperatures for the, the trees and the sap. So I know of small neighborhoods in Toronto where it's become an annual hobby. The residents get together, they tap their own trees, and pre-pandemic would even hold a small gathering every year to celebrate all their hard work and share their syrup. Of course, it's a, a smaller scale. But how complex is the one at Purple Woods Conservation Area? I assume it's not just the spile and hooks and, and lids. So our, our historically, our operation was files and uh, and buckets years and years and years ago, and it was much more manual than it is now. It's somewhat automa- automated now. We do have food-grade piping that connects all the spiles and connects all the trees, and um, our system is under vacuum so that we can draw sap when it is running and when temperatures are ideal. Um, so we have come a long ways, and we certainly uh, have mo- modernized a lot of our our equipment to improve the quality of the sap, improve the quality of the syrup. And how much do you produce on a typical good year? So in a good year, um, between 1,000 litres and 1,200 litres in a really good year. Um, Last year, we produced just under 800 litres, so we were down approximately 30%. So there has been a growing trend in cooking to replace sugar with more natural sweeteners like maple syrup. Personally, I use it in baking and salad dressings and cooking. It's it's actually a must-have ingredient for me in my fridge. Are you also seeing a demand increase? We certainly are. Um, as you noted, Christine, 
in baking, um, salad dressings, um, but also in uh, marinades for various meats and vegetables and products as well. Um, our, our product has been um, used and served locally in, in a number of different uh, restaurants and butcher shop operations. I found it quite remarkable when I researched that Canada produces, I think, over 70% of the world's pure maple syrup, uh, most of it in Quebec. What impact is climate change going to have on production in future years? Well, we are seeing things, certainly um, concerns with regard to uh, more violent storms. Um, we're losing some some trees periodically with regard to those storms, but there's other um, things that we're dealing with, such as uh, uh, pests that can affect the trees and the health of the uh, the sugar bush woodlot as well. Um, so that's that's something that we're monitoring and trying to stay on top of to to ensure that we have a healthy sugar bush woodlot. The pandemic has hit pretty well every sector, and you know you're no different. What are the rules now for people who visit Purple Woods Conservation Area, and how has that impacted your popular festival every year? So generally, um, we would enjoy twelve to 15,000 visitors every year over a, a three-week stretch. Um, people would generally enjoy our Purple Woods Heritage Hall, um, as well as pancakes and fresh maple syrup. This year, um, we've, we're happy to see that um, we have uh, a, a scoped festival um, that we've entitled From Sap to Syrup. There will be a self-guided hike at Purple Woods Conservation Area. And registrations required for that event as well. The event will be running from March 16th to the 20th, as well as the weekend of March 26th, 27th, and April 2nd and 3rd. Dan Hope, thank you for this. You're welcome. That was Dan Hope with the Central Lake Ontario Conservation Authority. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.